Good evening, friends. Am I on the air? I should be. Thank you. Those of you who were here last uh, Sunday night will know that uh, Phil introduced us to the book of 1 Corinthians. And the scriptures that he's asked me to speak on tonight run from verses 10 to 17. So take your Bibles and let's read them together. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Friends, just a cursory reading of this book of 1 Corinthians soon reveals that the church here at Corinth had some major problems. In fact, it was in a mess spiritually. Paul came to Greece and started in the city of Athens some years before. He planted a church there and Then he went around to Corinth, probably walked around there. It's only about 20 kilometers. And this was a real cosmopolitan city, a sex-saturated city driven by pagan religions. It was a seaport uh, that attracted all and sundry that traveled the Mediterranean area. And this was a fertile area into which to preach the life-changing gospel of Christ. And this Paul did. And before long, there developed a fellowship of believers out of those who had given their lives to Christ and sought God's forgiveness for their sin and new life in Christ. Paul left the area, left some people in charge of the church, and a few years down the track, after Paul had moved to other places, we have here that the household of Chloe came to him with a message that there were major problems in the church at Corinth. These problems were threatening to destroy the church or at least seriously hinder the spiritual growth of these immature believers. Now that kind of strategy by the devil has been repeated over and over and over again. In fact, there are many, many things about this book that, that parallel the day and age in which we live the looseness of morality among people, the uh, disdain for the things of God, the turning to all kinds of philosophies instead of to the gospel. There's so much in this book 
that parallels the day and age in which we live. Let me warn you that if the devil can keep you from coming to Christ, do everything he can to prevent you obeying the gospel, if he cannot achieve that, then if you give your life to Christ, he will do, use every subtle, rotten trick to try and prevent you from growing in Christ and becoming a useful and fruitful person for him. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. Do you know the devil tried to do this among the disciples, just to give you an example. And, and, and right up until the eve of the crucifixion, the disciples were arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them and about who was going to be first in the kingdom of God. What idiotic stuff to be arguing about by grown, mature adult people. And yet it was happening. And this was spurred on by the evil one. And, and here he was trying to cause division right at the outset of the church among these disciples. So as we look at these verses 10 to 17 in this first chapter, Paul launches into addressing the first major problem in this church. Now, why did he mention this first? Simply because I believe it was the biggest problem. It was the biggest problem because this particular one affected everyone in the church. Whereas many of the other problems that we strike as we go through the remaining chapters were focused on individuals and small groups of people. The problem here was disunity and division among the Christians and it was fracturing and destroying their role as the body of Christ in that area. That's always what disunity does in the church. Now, as we try to unravel this problem and how the Holy Spirit guided Paul to, to deal with it, we will focus on four things. First of all, the critical nature of this problem. Secondly, the culture in the area that encouraged this problem. Then the characteristics of this problem in the church. And finally, the cure for this problem. The critical nature of this problem. I'm sure you've heard it said many times, united we stand, divided we fall. You know, this does not only apply to a church as we have it here. It can apply to any organization. It can apply to a sporting team. It can apply to a community. But something had happened here to these believers in Corinth that instead of uniting them and welding them together into a strong vital fellowship and a force for good and for God, they were at loggerheads with each other. They were in competition with each other and they were seriously disunited and divided. Now you compare that with some of the great days of the early church recorded in the book of Acts, say chapter 4 here. And when the church was impacting the pagan community, even it says turning the world upside down, but the right side up, it was written here in the scriptures that in those days the church was not as here, divided, fractured, disunited, but the church was of one heart and of one mind, producing a people of great grace and great power. Would to God we had churches like that today. 
Now, this doesn't mean that they agreed with each other on every detail and everything that they had to do with. No, it doesn't. But they, they were bound together by Calvary love. They agreed to disagree about non-essential issues. They truly loved each other. Now, some people take this scripture and they say, well, we really do have something like that in our world today. Look at the denominations that we have round about us, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, and so on. But I want to tell you tonight that this scripture does not apply to the denominational setup that we have in the world today. Do you realize that these denominations, most of which came into being in the last, well, two to 400 years, they came into being as a protest, a protest against dead, corrupt churchianity, out of which came people bursting out of this who had really found Christ, who had really come to know life in the Lord, and they developed into vital Christ-centered Bible-believing fellowships. And he realized this also, that most of the denominations that we have were nicknames that were given to them by the outside world. And, uh, and, and Jesus referred to this kind of activity as putting new wine into old wineskins that will burst out. So if you want to retain that new wine, you have to put it into new forms, new, new, new wineskins. That's what the denominational setup really relates to, not what we have here in this particular chapter. Let me read it to you again. I appeal to you in the name of Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Christ. Now, it was the Christians who were saying this. This was not a protest movement against unbelievers, against religious corruption, against dead churchianity, like happened with the Great Reformation and since. No, this was amongst Christians. One says, I follow Paul. Another said, I follow Apollos. Another said, I follow Cephas. And another said, I follow Christ. And Paul asks the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Now, my dear friends, there was no future for a church like this. And whenever it happens, even in our day and generation, it seriously weakens the church. It destroys its witness for Christ. It makes a mockery of the gospel and negates the good news about Christ. No wonder it's a serious issue. And whenever it happens in a church, it takes years to recover. That's why this was such a serious problem and dealt with first by the Apostle Paul. So much then for the critical nature of this problem. Now look at the culture that encouraged this problem from the people round about. I'm sure you find this a profound statement, but an ocean liner is built to travel across an ocean 
to transport passengers from one country to another or from one port to another. That's a really profound statement, isn't it? Well, as long as the ship keeps the ocean out, it can fulfill magnificently its purpose for which it was created. But if the ocean gets into the ship, disaster will follow like the Titanic, keeping the ship from ever fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. Now, God designed the church, the body of believers, to operate in this ungodly world in order to impact it with the life-changing gospel. As long as the church keeps out the influence of the world in doing its work and takes its cue from Christ and His Word, it will be wonderfully used of God. But if the world influences the church and worldly attitudes and methods are adopted by the church as happens, it will be seriously affected. Now, this was the real problem at Corinth. Division was only an expression of the real problem of a church that had now grasped hold of the world in its methods and its approach to try and do the work of God. And they're not the first church that's done that. Now, as I said, the task of the church is to correct the spirit of the age. Look at, look at some of the marvellous examples we have in history. Just let me take one. Take the Great Awakening in England in the 18th century. Do you know that an Anglican bishop wrote in a journal, he said, we can now write the history of the church. It's finished. More priests were dying of drunkenness than babies being baptised into the church. I quote you word for word from an Anglican bishop back in those days. The Anglican state church was absolutely corrupt. And then God put his hand upon an Anglican minister, got him converted. It's always good to have your minister converted. <laughs> and, and, and he went out you know, to... to um, uh, America to help the Lord do some missionary work and came home an absolute failure. Went to the little meeting in Aldersgate in London, became a Christian through the preaching of the book of Romans and John Wesley went back into those Anglican, dead, corrupt Anglican churches. And I'm not only singling out the Anglican church. Go back to the Reformation for other details. But John Wesley went there and he started to preach the life-changing gospel. And people said, get out of here, we don't want to hear this. And they forced him out of church after church. So he got on a horse and he rode out into the fields. And people recognised truth. They recognised reality. They recognised the authority with which this man spoke. They hadn't heard authoritative speaking like that for a long, long time. And thousands of them went out into the fields of England and many, many, many of them gave their lives to Christ. And he was so methodical in putting them into little groups, little discipleship groups, that it was the people out in the world that nicknamed them the Methodists. But do you know that, that what was accomplished in those days through one man and his brother, the hymn writer, you know those things we used to sing? Well, the hymn writer, they just simply gave voice to the marvellous life-changing gospel of Christ. And the history books tell us 
that England was saved from something worse than the French Revolution by the power of the gospel. Now that's what God hoped would happen in Corinth. But early in the peace, the devil got active among the Christians and put them at loggerheads with each other, split them up into divisions. Now why did they do this? How did Greek culture get into the church here and seriously affect it? Now if you don't understand this, you will not properly understand 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first thing we need to understand is this, that in Greece in those days, public speaking was the most popular pastime in the land. The only thing I could compare it to is AFL football in Melbourne. It was as popular as that. And if you're down at Geelong, even more popular. We don't need that, thank you. Now this country, this country of philosophers and seekers of wisdom, that wisdom they called Sophia. So if you've got a a name Sophie or Sophia, you come from good stock. Well, Sophia and these people out there in the world, they formed speaking groups or guilds all over the country. I mean, look, look at their heritage. They could boast that they had philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And I guess everyone that led one of these groups hoped that he'd be the next little Aristotle or the next little Plato and so on. And they just worked at that day in and day out. Each group got together to discuss the latest word of wisdom. Each group would have a gifted leader. And they were specially trained and taught. And people gravitated to a particular group mainly because of their leader. And they became fanatical about this. And they became very competitive. Now that's what was going on out there in the world around this new church. To give you an idea how serious was this approach to public speaking, there were special training centres in Greece for the preparation and the training of leaders for groups. Now you listen to this. This is how serious they were. These groups were often headed up by professional actors from the Greek theatre. And prospective leaders would be taken after they enrolled in one of these training programs, taken down to the seashore And they would be taught to articulate their speech so that they could be clearly heard in their public speaking against the crashing of the waves. Now next time there's waves crashing in on a sea, go down and try and have a conversation with somebody. It's hard work. But that's where they taught them first of all. Now when they mastered this, small stones were placed in their mouths. And with this impedance, they had to practice clear speech. And it was understood, and be understood rather, with these stones in their mouths. Now it was in this way that they hoped to become the leader of a philosophical group or a speaking guild. It was the in thing. 
Now that's how serious the Greeks were about public speaking and philosophy and to discuss their search for real wisdom. Now it was this cultural factor that got into the church and threatened to wreck it, causing disunity, division, competition and jealousy among the Christians. Just let me mention another little aside here. If you go over to chapter 14, you will find that the Apostle Paul is dealing with the abuse of the tongues gift. No other church had this problem, but Corinth did. Can you begin to see why? Well, it grew out of this love of public speaking. When people began to speak in tongues and... uh, and they did so, of course, in around the church. They were exalted as special, even though no one could understand them. And Paul comes in and said, listen, I would sooner you speak five words in a known tongue than 10,000 of this unknown tongue. But they didn't care. If somebody just became fluent in some sort of language, whether they understood it or not, they were champions, champion public speakers. And so the whole tongue's gift threw them into chaos and confusion. You'll read all about it in 1 Corinthians 14 and I'm sure Phil will get to it uh, one year ahead. All right, that, that gives you a little idea of the culture that was surrounding the Christian believers in Corinth. Now let's have a look at the characteristics that identified this problem in the church. The spirit of the world was gradually taking over the church instead of the church winning and influencing the world as they obeyed God and his word. Out in the world, they enjoyed their rival groups and arguing with each other and quarrelling and in this competitive fashion trying to vie some importance. Well, This is the attitude that was carried over into the church by forming, as we know here, four religious groups. And each of these religious groups were headed by a prominent Christian leader. Just like the world out there. It was driving wedges between the Christians, dividing them and destroying the work and witness of these believers. Look at these factions. The Paul party. Now, no doubt, these people in this little party were proud of the fact that they were the first converts to Christianity in Corinth. They were the founders of the church. A lot of other people may come and go, but we're the founders. We founded this church when Paul came to preach the gospel. They believed that they should have precedence over later converts. I'm sure they had not want anything changed from that beginning or what uh, they approved was what would go. They'd be the traditionalists, always referring to the good old days. 
You try to change anything and you are in for trouble. Paul rebuked them in saying he thanked God that he hadn't baptised too many of them, three of them in fact. Otherwise, he said you'd add this to your claim for distinctiveness and importance. How trivial. The Paul party, the Apollos party. Now Apollos came to minister in Corinth after Paul left. He was famous in the early church as an eloquent preacher and a skillful apologist. Oh, he could stand in one of these groups against other groups and he could argue for what he was arguing for and just kind of put them in the shade. But there was another twist to it. He came from Alexandria in northern Africa. And that was a centre that was known for its allegorical interpretation of the scriptures in the years to come. Now, this all sounded fascinating to new believers, even though it could get totally out of hand. You see, men like Apollos, they saw a hidden meaning in every word and, and every phrase of the scriptures. And now and again, you come across people like this. I remember hearing one character speaking on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Man, what he got out of that parable was nobody's business. Even to saying that when the Good Samaritan left two pence with, uh, with the innkeeper to look after the wounded uh, 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 fellow there, he said those two things represented baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, good night. That's allegorism. And there's very little of it in the Bible. You'll find some in Galatians that's legitimate. But when people start talking like this, they need to hear that old adage, when plain sense, when you're studying the Bible, when plain sense makes common sense, then any other sense is nonsense. So much for the Apollos party. Then you had the Cephas party or the Peter party. These would have been the legalists. They had strong feelings about details of belief and behaviour, uh, much more strict than these other easygoing Christians. The big issues to them would have been all the do's and the don'ts that are supposed to make you spiritual. But their big problem, and so often is with people like that, it's the do's and the don'ts that measure your spirituality, not your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Then there was the Christ party. Ah, oh, these people, these people had a deep, deep problem, a pride problem. You know, I, I reckon that they would have even doubted that any of the others were saved. They probably doubted whether they even knew the Lord. They probably thought they were the only ones going to heaven. Now and again, you come across groups of Christians like this. They think they're the only ones, like the guy that went up to heaven and looked around and saw a little huddle of people over there and 
He said, who are they? And he said, oh, they're the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. Well, be that as it may. But they certainly would never admit that they were wrong about anything. And, and of course, with people like this, their big problem was they would usually prefix things by saying, and the Lord told me. Now tell me, what argument have you got against that? I get scared stiff when people come to me and say, the Lord told me. And I say, have you got a hotline to the Almighty? I know the Lord speaks to us through his word, and I don't mean to minimize that. But when you hear this again and again, I remember a certain person used to get up in a church where I was at business meetings and, and would just silence everybody by saying, the Lord told me such and such. Most of the others didn't believe him. But that's the Christ party, you see. Now, all of this had a devastating effect upon the church and its future. So the problem had to be corrected. And that leads me to the final point about the cure for this problem. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, that's the expression of all those groups out there and the expression of some of the groups in the church, it was just human wisdom. The Lord never organized that. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What was the cure for these worldly attitudes among the believers here in Corinth that was overtaking the church? It was the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and the principle of the cross applied to their lives. These people needed to focus again, not on what the world was doing out there, but to focus again on the cross of Christ and apply its principles to their lives. And you say, Graham, what do you mean? What do you mean? First of all, the cross of Christ challenges every one of us who claim the name of Christ as our Saviour to surrender to him as Lord and Master and live to please him in all aspects of our lives. You remember Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's the principle of the cross. The taking up of the cross daily was sold out to the service of God and surrendered to the will of God. You are not your own, said the word, Peter said. You are bought with a price, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You and I as believers belong to Christ. And if we are truly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will avoid anything that causes disunity in his body. 
For many, many years I was involved with the Keswick Convention movement and one of the leaders of Belgrave Heights for 14 years. As a young Christian, when I first became involved with this, after getting away from my own very restricted area where I was seeking to live for Christ, I was amazed at the cross-section of people who would meet at those conventions. Nobody worried about what church they went to. Nobody even asked them what was their view of the second coming or their view of, of, of Arminianism or Calvinism or something else like this that divides people. The theme of it was all one in Christ Jesus. Get your eyes on him and let him bless you. Let him take you where he wants to, not following worldly methods out there to be what you think you ought to be. Secondly, the cross of Christ places every person on the same level as to spiritual need and value. No one stands any higher than another at the foot of the cross. No one. And those of you who are here in my day heard me say on a number of occasions, there is level ground at the foot of the cross. I mean, you just take the church and the church is the only institution that I know like this. You can have a highly educated person sitting next to a person who doesn't know anything. And they love each other if they're in Christ. But you go on out into that big world out there where social standing and money and education and social status are the things that divide people. The cross of Christ unites people. And when we, when we take the Lord seriously and fix our eyes upon him and apply the principle of the cross daily to our lives, there's a marvellous bond that is formed among God's people. And the third thing is this. The cross of Christ places those in Christ into one family, not little groups here and there that are competing for each other, vying against each other, destroying and negating the work of the gospel. The cross of Christ places those in Christ into one family who are to express unity as it is in the Godhead perfectly but to express unity and love to each other as a demonstration of their union with Christ. Now listen, hear me as I come to a close. When you and I are born again, the Holy Spirit takes us and places us into an extraordinary union with Christ and with each other called the body of Christ. The Lord does that. You can't get yourself there without the Lord. But once you have yielded your life to Christ and received him as your personal saviour, that glorious factor becomes true and he brings you into the unity of the saints with Christ. Then, now hear me, then God says, you keep that union. I don't keep it, you keep it. How do we keep it? Look up Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you do it? You do it with gentleness toward one another, humility toward one another, forbearance toward one another, and forgiving one another. 
You see, they're all human qualities that we exercise toward each other that brings about a binding together that won't be divided. You know what should be our daily prayer? Let me give it to you from Romans 15 and verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you and you and you and you and you and you, you, Graham. May he give you a spirit of unity among yourselves so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So accept one another as Christ accepted you. My dear friends, God can do some incredible things with a unified fellowship. That's why he says, with all the energy you can muster, with everything you know within your strength and power, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Will you pray with me? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear instruction of your word. We thank you for the way we can learn from the mistakes and the errors of those who have gone before us and that you put on record here in your word that which can help us to avoid such things because they surely do happen. And some of us have been in places where we have experienced deep hurts through the divisions that have come among those who profess to love you. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to apply the principle of the cross of Calvary to our lives daily and that you will bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together with love. For the Lord Jesus and his word and for each other, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.